Well, good morning, church. I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. Uh, and it is so encouraging to see uh, that our church is on mission. Uh, we are on mission to see the name of Jesus furthered, uh, not only uh, in Kentucky, but uh, in our nation and, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, as we have just witnessed these life-changing stories of, of people's hearts being changed, uh, we're going to dive into a text where we see the Apostle Paul, uh, how he uses the story of redemption uh, to advance the gospel. And so Acts chapter 14, uh, we're, I'm going to start in verse 11 uh, through the beginning of 15. And so when you find Acts 14, uh, verse 11, I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Acts 14, 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and wreaths to the gate, and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Oh, Father, we pray right now uh, that, God, you would show us what it means to, to know you and to make you known. And Lord, I pray you would give us a heart for evangelism. Use your word in our hearts this morning. It's in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we get into our text this morning, we see that Paul is on his first missionary journey. Uh, he has traveled to several different cities throughout the region. He, and he goes into each of these, these cities and he preaches first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And every time he enters one of these cities, uh, he is faced with great persecution. Uh, even to the point where he has to pack up his bags and leave to the next city or they will kill him. And so here we are uh, with Paul, and he's in a different kind of city. Uh, this, is, this is Lystra. Lystra was a, a country town uh, in the, the Roman Empire. It was the frontier outpost for the empire. Think of it like the wild, wild west. These people were uneducated. They were, they were backwoods pagans. It was almost like this indigenous people group. See, the, the Romans, they ruled the land. Uh, the Greeks, they, they controlled all the commerce. And then Jews had little to no presence at all. And just like every other city that Paul enters, he, he begins preaching the gospel. And so what I want us to look at this morning are some really practical ways that we can apply Paul's evangelism tactics. So the first tactic that Paul uh, illustrates for us is his personal holiness. It's his greatest evangelistic tool. Look at verse 8 of chapter 14. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting. There was a uh, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "Stand upright on your feet." And he sprang up and began walking. 
So we see this man who has been crippled from birth. He's never walked a day in his life, and he spent his entire life crawling through the dust to get to these marketplaces to where he has the best advantage to beg for a living. And here he is, he's, he's lying on his mat in the middle of this, this pagan crowd, and he catches the, the voice of Paul speaking. And it says that Paul looked at him intently. It's this idea that, that Paul's talking to this great crowd of, of pagan uh, worshipers, and he, he lands his eyes on one guy, and he never takes his eyes off of him. And he looks at him intently. And Paul uh, then perceives this man's faith by the working of the Spirit. And he tells this man to stand up. And the man gets up and he begins walking for the first time in his life. Now, it would be easy to look at this story and and to kind of conclude that that this is about Paul healing the the physical ailments of this crippled man. But I, I don't think that's why Luke is recording this in the book of Acts. Notice in verse 9, it says that he listened to Paul speaking. Now, what do you think Paul was speaking about? Was he giving physical therapy instructions? Was, was he trying to, to show them how to properly do CrossFit? Was, he get, was it just this motivational speech that was like, now we can rise up and walk? No, no of course, we understand that, that Paul, he was speaking the gospel. He was preaching the word. He was talking about the the perfect life of Christ. His death on the cross that we deserve and his resurrection that gives us new life. And it says this man had faith to be made well. And, And what's interesting about this English phrase, to be made well... It's actually just one word in the original language. And it's the same word in which we get soteriology, which just means it's the study of salvation, how someone is saved. And so when the text says, Paul, seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul saw through the lens of the Holy Spirit that this crippled man just believed the gospel unto salvation. And so we can see that there are two healings here. The first, his soul comes alive in Christ. And then there's a byproduct of of the coming kingdom that his physical ailments are also restored. We see this time and time again as Jesus and his apostles go out and they're preaching the gospel and and people are being made well. What's taking place is is we're, we're getting a little glimpse of what the kingdom will be like. When there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more physical ailments, no death. And this is why Paul preaches the gospel, to advance this kingdom. But have you ever wondered why Paul preached, or ever wondered how Paul preached the gospel? This is the greatest missionary in the history of the world. How did he have the the determination, the, the audacity to keep going into city after city after city, preaching the gospel, even in the face of death? Well, we, we look at scripture, we see something Unique. We, we see that Paul had a pursuit of holiness. Paul's greatest tool in sharing Jesus was simply to look more like Jesus. Paul had an unshakable, unrelenting, holy ambition to look more like Christ day after day after day. In Philippians 3, Paul says, Not that I have already attained this, that is, I have not been perfected. But I strive 
to lay hold of that which I was laid hold of by Christ. And Christ, who, who we see is, is perfectly holy, shows us the climax of holiness is selflessness on the cross. The most selfless thing that you can do is share the gospel. Paul's greatest tool in evangelism was his pursuit of personal holiness. And the same is true for you. I wonder, have you ever connected those two things? That your, your personal devotion to King Jesus being your greatest tactic in sharing Jesus. The times that you spend in the Word, in the mornings, when you wake up and you, you spend time communing with the Lord in prayer and you're filling yourself up on the Scripture, it's directly linked with you going out and living on mission. I find uh, those who are most enthralled and, and captivated by the person of Jesus are also the most bold witnesses for the kingdom. Because you talk about whatever you're consuming. You talk about whatever is filling you up. If, if you watch baseball all the time, you're going to talk about baseball. If you're, if you're watching the Food Network uh, on, on Food Network channel, you're going to start baking. You're going to start doing what you're consuming. And Paul, we see, was consumed by Christ. And so he couldn't help but talk about Jesus. And the opposite of this is also true, right? So I find those who, who have a weak witness for Christ are often more concerned with themselves. Because if you're not hungry for God, then you're probably full of yourself. And if you're full of yourself, you're only going to talk about yourself. But when, we, when you empty out these, these selfish desires, our, our comforts, our preferences, our, our, our anything that, that controls us, when we, when we empty those out and we fill ourselves up on the immense love of God, we remind ourselves that the gospel is true and we experience this daily forgiveness, we will be a walking billboard for Christ. We will not be able to help but talk about Him. And so your pursuit of holiness to look more like Christ is your greatest tool in your evangelism belt. Look what happens right after that this man springs up when Paul tells him to. In verse 11, it says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, Oh, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they call him Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. And so, as soon as this man, he, he springs up, he starts walking, the crowd sees this, and they cry out, Look, the gods have come down to us, and they're men. They've just witnessed this miracle, and they're so quick to believe that these two men are gods. One miracle, and you're labeled a god. One. And yet we see in the Gospels, Jesus doing tens of thousands of miracles. He also healed a crippled man. Probably many. Heals blind men. He, he raises a man from the dead. And, and in the book of uh, John, we see that uh, he writes, if, if every one of Jesus' miracles were written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Paul performs one miracle. And he's labeled a God. Jesus performs thousands of miracles, and he was God. And they crucified him for it. Why is that? You see, every person that you've ever met 
is a worshiper. Everyone wants to worship something because we we were created to do that. You were created to worship. And so this crowd in Lystra, they are eager to worship. They lift up their voices and triumph. And they're they're saying, look, the the gods have paid our backwoods city a visit. But if you notice, their worship was self-focused. It was self-referential. They wanted the benefits of having the gods in their city. Right? They're, they're looking over to Iconium and, and Antioch and they're saying, hey guys, look, look at Lystra now. We're the, we're the home of Zeus and Hermes. The gods are here in our town. They wanted to be known as the city of the gods. They were more full of self. The more the, the, they were more full of self than they were of the gods that they were worshiping. Because the, these gods that they were worshiping only filled them up with more self. So anything that you worship other than God will only give you more you. It will only fill you up with more of yourself. And that's the curse of idolatry. John Calvin said it best when he said that our, our hearts are, uh, are idol factories. They're just constantly producing things for us to gravitate towards, to, for us to value and worship. Our hearts are idol factories. And we know that, when, that self-worship, it only leads to destruction. Right? We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, they, they want glory for themselves. They want to be like God, and so they eat the fruit. And what happens? Humanity is cursed with death. Self-glory, self-worship ends in death. And the crowd at Lystra did the exact same thing. They approached worship based on how they could benefit. It was self-promotional. And what's really terrifying about this text is that we're not Paul and Barnabas. We're the pagan crowd. We're, We're Lystra. When you worship self, it only paralyzes your evangelistic zeal. A few years ago, I, I was uh, sitting in a coffee shop with some seminary buddies, and, and uh, we were all taking different classes. And so we began talking about theology. It seemed like a harmless conversation. And, and soon it just became this, this one-upmanship game of, okay, he, here's how much he knows about this theology, and here's, here's how much this person, and here's how much I know. And we're just kind of one-upping each other on different theo- theological points. And it struck me later. That this entire coffee shop that we were sitting in was full of lost people everywhere. And never once did we say anything about Jesus to them. You see, we were talking about God, but we were worshiping ourselves. And maybe you're you're paralyzed to share Jesus by a different kind of self-worship. The worship of of self-preservation. You get the chance to talk about Jesus, and and then you give yourself literally every excuse in the book just to not to. It's just not, I'm not going to do that. Right? Maybe you're, you're a mom, and you're, you're at the park, and you meet this other mom, and you're like, hey, let's have a play date. This other mom comes over to your house, and you, you're pretty sure that this other mom does not know Jesus. And you just started this relationship with them, and you're like, uh, this, this could be really awkward uh, if I talk about Jesus. I, I'm just going to... I'm going to stay silent for now. Like, it's just not worth the awkwardness. Or maybe you're at the office and um, you hear somebody just take the Lord's name in vain. And you're, in your mind, you're like, okay, this is, this is an opportunity to, to talk about the God that this person just cursed. Like, I could do this. 
but no, I just, that'll just make things weird now. I can't, I shouldn't do that. Listen, when, when you withhold Jesus at the expense of your own reputation, that's self-worship. And when you worship self, you're only paralyzing your ability to share Jesus. And here's, I was thinking about this. We can, we can be guilty of worshiping ourselves even while we're sharing the gospel. If you think about this, you, you spend a lot of time, maybe you've got this person in your mind, it's your neighbor, it's your family member, and you're like, okay, I'm going to share the gospel with this person, I'm going to do it. You get to that moment where you're like, okay, here we go. And you're so concerned with what they're going to think about you, with, with what if I say the right thing, or if I mess up, or if this presentation just comes out clunky and it, it just doesn't work out the way I want it to. If I'm more concerned with me and the presentation that I'm giving, that's idolatry. That's self-worship. You can be more concerned with, with your presentation and how people perceive you than the actual person in front of you encountering a holy God. And when we do this, we minimize the gospel. Now, that's not to say that God still can't use those moments in your life where you're scared and you're, gonna, you're still kind of sinning, but you're sharing the gospel. Like, he can still save people. He has the power to save. But it minimizes the gospel in our own lives. But what if we, this would be awesome, and I can't wait for heaven when there is no more sin. We don't have to worry about this. But what if we could just get out of the way? If we're just, we remove ourselves from this, this equation and we stop worrying about ourselves in these moments. And we just made much of Jesus. What if our, our prayer life was to remove any desire for self-glory, to be forgotten, and just for the name of Jesus to be magnified? And, and that's exactly what Paul is trying to do in these next verses. Look at how he deflects personal glory and he points them to eternal glory in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Now remember, Paul and Barnabas, these, these, the, 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 the people are crying out, the gods are here. They don't know what they're saying because they're talking in their native pagan tongue, like Laconian. They, they don't understand. But when they see the oxen and the reeds coming out with the priests, they're just like, oh no, okay, you, we got to do something about this. They, they see the sacrifice, they run into the crowd in distress by tearing their clothes, and they say, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. We are not gods. We are sinful people just like you. Have you ever thought about this position that Paul was placed in? I mean, how easy would it have been to just go with the flow? I mean, you've got this whole crowd and they're, they're ready to worship you. They're ready to offer this fattened oxen to you and you can eat and feast. And maybe you could pragmatically think, well, you know, I've got the ear of the people now. If they think I'm a God, this gives me a better position to talk about Jesus. That's the easy way. And Paul, you see, that doesn't do that. Instead of taking glory, they rush into the crowd. They throw up the yellow flag, calling foul. They say, stop it. We're not gods. We're men just like you. And so what we see here is Paul doesn't look down on the people as gods, but he looks across to them as fellow image bearers. And I wonder if this is how we approach our faith with others? Do, do we come in with, with just a little 
sense of superiority. We may know, yeah, okay, I'm sinful, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not like that messed up. I mean, at least I've got something going on for me, right? So I joined this this Facebook group kind of by accident, and uh, I started. I thought it was this group to like share ministry ideas, and and I start scrolling through this this uh, these posts, and I, I quickly recognize that this is not what that is. Uh, this is a, a group of a bunch of dudes. They're they're basically critiquing the Christian culture, and all they all they want to do is talk about how bad these people's theology is. And so I was thinking, what in the world? This is this is just a cesspool of self righteousness. These people are just constantly thinking that they are more right than the others. They were looking down on those that did not agree with what they thought. And so I thought, how, how in the world does does this group, how, how in the world do these conversations advance the kingdom? Like what good, what, what glory is Jesus receiving from this? And so I left the group. And then I realized something. That I was being self-righteous about their self-righteousness. I was thinking, well, how dare they? But that's self-righteousness in my own heart. I, I wasn't correcting my brothers. I wasn't sharing the gospel with them. I did nothing. So self-righteousness will incapacitate your ability to share Jesus with others. Because do you not realize that the Bible teaches, apart from Christ, there is nothing good in you. It says no one is good, no, not one. This is the posture that we see Paul taking. Later, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul knew his sin. He knew how his offense against the holy God. He knew his failures. But that, but his sin didn't disqualify him from sharing the gospel. It actually allowed him to share the gospel, to show people that Jesus saved. It made him more equipped. And so a greater awareness of your sin only magnifies your awareness of God's grace. Have you ever thought about this for yourself? That, that being just open and honest about your sin with, with someone that doesn't know Jesus, and uh, someone who is a non-believer, if you're just open and honest and saying, hey, this is where I struggle, that, that doesn't ruin your witness. It actually provides an opportunity for you to tell them how Jesus is changing you. And so if someone says, oh, yeah, dude, I just struggle with, with anger. I struggle with this or that. You're like, dude, me too. But, but God is, he's, he's working in my heart and I'm seeing things that are changing and, and I'm just thankful for the Lord's work. So your brokenness doesn't disqualify you from sharing the gospel. It actually provides the means to share the gospel. And so when we're sharing the gospel with somebody and, and they look at us and like, oh, dude, you don't even know. You have no clue how bad I am. Like, if you just knew the stuff that was going on in my life, the sin that I've committed, like, there's just no way that God could save somebody like me. I just don't believe it. And we look at that person and we say, me too. But Jesus saved me anyway. That's, that's the mystery of the cross. That Christ came not to, to save the righteous. He came to save the sinner. And this is the, the good news that Paul is preaching. Look at verse 15. And we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things into a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
So here we see this next tactic that Paul takes in sharing the gospel. He uses a, a, a story, a conversation, and not a presentation. But before we get into uh, to how Paul does this, uh, look at how he responds to the crowd. He says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. Now, good news, we, we, we know that translates gospel good news. It's, a, it's, a, it's the translation of it. And we use this word gospel a whole lot at Ashland, if you haven't noticed. Uh, it's because we are about the gospel. We major on the gospel. It is everything that drives us. It is the gospel. And so I think it's helpful to, to clarify what this is. And you hear gospel, maybe you think of God's love. Okay. Uh, maybe you think of justification by faith alone. Yeah, that's, that's the gospel. Or, or Jesus died for my sins so that I, I could be saved. None of those things are wrong. Those are, those are all parts of the gospel. But to understand this word just a little bit better, it's, it's helpful to take a step back into time. Okay, so the word gospel in Greek it translates to good news. And the word was, was used well before Jesus came onto the scene. And so before Jesus was born, people were using the word gospel. And it was used in, in uh, primarily, it was popularized in war and battle. This was how the gospel was used. And so it was this announcement of victory of a king. And so you've got this king, and he's got his army, and they're, they're about to go to battle. And so they meet the enemy out on the battlefield, and they wage war against one another. And the, the people back in the, the kingdom, back in the fortress, are, are waiting in anticipation. Are we going to become slaves to the enemy? Or will, will our king have victory? What will happen to us? And so they wage war and the king seizes victory over the enemy. And as soon as they have victory, they, they send a messenger boy back to the, the village, back to the kingdom. And he's running as fast as he can and he's bringing the gospel. He's bringing the good news that their king has won, that they are victorious. And so when Paul is preaching to the city of pagans who have, they're biblically illiterate. They have no knowledge of the Old Testament. When Paul says, we bring you good news, we bring you gospel, they know what he's talking about. It's familiar. It's, it's saying we bring you an announcement that our king has won the victory. Okay, Paul, so what is this victory? What are we talking about? Look what he says. That you should turn from these vain things into a living God. Wait. Repentance? Repentance is victory? Really? How is that? Repentance, when I hear that word, I think of sorrow. I think of regret. It doesn't make me think of good news. But Paul's saying that it should. Because repentance, repentance is good news because it's the act of, of turning from worthless things into a worthy person, to a living God. Repentance reveals to your heart that worth, worthless things were never meant to satisfy you. Only God can do that. So Paul talks about repentance here. And he says, look, look at how he approaches the, the gospel and sharing the good news with, with entering into a, a story. It's not so much a presentation. The end of uh, 15b. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk away, to walk in their own ways. 
Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Did you see what Paul did here? He entered into their context of what they already knew. That these are pagans, void of scripture, they have no knowledge. So, so Paul doesn't come in and say, okay, here's, here's the Torah, here's the Old Testament, this is what the prophets said like he did in the other towns. He didn't give this, this canned gospel presentation. He didn't um, pull out a, a sheet of paper and, and do the Romans road, which he wrote, by the way. Um, not, not that Romans road is wrong. I, I use that tool all the time. But he, he entered into their context. Paul understood these people. And so he starts with what they know. He tells a story. It's a story of redemption. He starts with Genesis 1-1, heaven and earth, sea and animals. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, I know you've got little gods for the, the sea and the animals and the land. I know you've got these little gods, but I'm here to tell you of a, an announcement that our king has won. And he created all these things. And he is worthy of worship. And he has won the victory over sin and death. You see, God, he didn't, uh, Paul didn't edit the gospel. You can't edit the gospel. What he does is he, he changed his approach to the gospel and how to, how to share it. And so we can take this same tactic that Paul is doing and we can learn to share Jesus without freaking out. I know for myself um, and, the, and the college students that I minister to uh, that we all overcomplicate this. We all overcomplicate sharing the gospel. What if we just took Paul's cue here and, and entered into the context of where we know people are? Right, the, the soul, the human soul is, is incredibly complex. But at the core, every person has the same fundamental desires. Right? There's a, a search for freedom. There's, there's a, a, a desire for, to find meaning and purpose in life. We want to be loved. We want to be in a, a community. So when we find these desires in someone, we can enter into that context and begin showing them Jesus. So everyone is searching for things that the gospel already answers. If that's true, then how easy should it be to just find out what that person's longing for, what, what they value, what they worship, and then enter into Jesus? So think about this with me. Let's say your, your next door neighbor uh, is, uh, practices homosexuality. She's a lesbian. And, and then you see this, this retired war veteran uh, at the grocery store. Okay. They both have this search for freedom. They're both seeking freedom. Now, their, their search looks totally different, right? But they're both searching for freedom. And so you enter the conversation and you say, hey, I know you're, I know you're looking for freedom. And I wonder, have you found it yet? Have you found freedom in what you're searching for? Can I tell you about the God who sets you free, who can set any person free? So you enter into that conversation. Maybe you've got a, a college freshman student who, who comes from out of state, and he's here in Richmond, and then you have your, your lonely widower down the street. And both people have a hunger for love and community. They're lonely. They, they want love and community. And so you're talking to them and you're saying, hey, hey there's, this, there's this community. It's called the church. And in the church, you're going to see people who sacrificially love one another. 
Because they've been bought by Jesus. Can I tell you about this community? Can I tell you about Jesus? Maybe there's an international student um, out from the the Middle East who who comes here. And then you've got your, your middle school child. Both people are looking or or desire to be rid of their guilt and their shame. And so you're talking to either one of them and you say, I I can see that you are weighed down by your sin. I'm watching you. You, There's weight to it. And let me tell you, it's, it's impossible to get rid of your sin. It's impossible to get rid of your shame. But can I tell you about the God who, who does the impossible? Who casts your sin as far as the east is from the west? So you just enter into the conversations of where people are searching for. We know people what people are longing for because it's what we long for. We long for these things too. And therefore, starting a gospel conversation should be the most natural thing for the Christian. Because everyone is created by God and everyone's created for God. Our job is simply to show people that truth. Our appetites, our longings, they're the same. And so when you encounter someone who doesn't, uh, when you encounter someone who doesn't know Jesus, you simply listen to where they are. Find out what they value, what they worship, what they're seeking, and then all you need to do is begin sharing Jesus with them in that context. We're, we're reading a book uh, as a church called Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. And in this book, I love this little tiny quote. He says, if you're a Christian, then you have a story. And if you're a human being, then you probably have relationships with other human beings. Boom. That's all you need to start sharing the gospel right now. And you're thinking, well, you know, Jacob, I've, I've tried to share the gospel with this family member or this friend. It didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. They, they didn't believe. In fact, they uh, just made things worse. That's okay. Jesus doesn't call you to save people. Jesus calls you to be faithful And to trust him to save. When Paul shared the gospel at Lystra, we see that it doesn't work out for him either, at least at the beginning. They actually tried to stone Paul and murder him. But look at how Paul trusted Jesus with the outcome. Look at verse 19 and 20. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. And the disciples gathered about him. He rose up, entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with, with Barnabas to Derby. So the Jews, they, they show up from Antioch and Iconium. This is the same place that, the, the place that Paul had just visited, sharing the gospel to the synagogues, to the Jews. And these Jews come to Lystra on a mission. <laughs> they took a day off of work to come to Lystra to, t- to tell the Lystra, Lystronians to kill Paul. And so they, uh, they, they kill, they, they, these are the same people, obviously, who, who were just praising the name of Paul and Barnabas as gods. And now they're ready to, to murder him. And so they thought they had killed this man. And they drug him out of the city so that his corpus isn't going to stink up their town. And Paul, uh, being gathered around by his disciples, I'm sure there was prayer going on there. He stands up, bloody face, rocks embedded in his forehead. He walks right back into Lystra. That is gritty gospel faithfulness. Paul's life was a a life faithful to Jesus. The power of the gospel is not dependent on your crafty presentation or your elegant words. It's simply a lifestyle of faithfulness to Jesus. This should free us up 
It should liberate us to live as bold witnesses for the kingdom. You don't need to have all the answers. That's good news. Because none of us have all the answers. You don't need to take seminary classes or read every apologetic book in order to share the gospel. You simply need a story. You need Jesus' story. This announcement of victory that, that Jesus came into a broken world to save sinners. He lived a perfect life, never sinning. Died the sinner's death on the cross, paying for your sin, for my sin. And then death was murdered. As Christ got out of the grave three days later, and now he offers us life now and for eternity. And when you believe this gospel, this announcement of victory, you get his story. Go tell that story.